This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. In 2019, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed received the Nobel Peace Prize. The committee noted that he had given amnesty to thousands of political prisoners, discontinued media censorship, fought against corruption, and legalized previously outlawed opposition groups. Abiy also received attention for his religious reconciliation work, which included mending a split in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and bringing together Christians and Muslims. Under his administration in 2019, Ethiopia's Siadma Zone voted for autonomous self-rule. The majority of the region's population identifies as Pente, the country's historical term for Protestant Pentecostals. But as of late, things have been very tense in the country. Last week, CNN reported that in November, scores of people were murdered by whom survivors believe are soldiers from nearby Eritrea, whose presence they blame on the Ethiopian government. The massacre occurred in the Tigray region, which is the northern part of the country and one that shares a border with Eritrea. Witnesses also reported another massacre that happened in the same month in Aksum, a historically holy city in Tigray. These events came just weeks after the Degrayan People's Liberation Front attacked Ethiopian military forces and the central government responded violently in return. We are going to get more into the current political situation later on the podcast, but we wanted to discuss the situation this week because of Ethiopia's long and extensive Christian history. Ethiopia was the second country in the world to officially adopt Christianity as its state religion, and the church has survived so many things, including estrangement from Rome, the spread of Islam, and repeated colonization attempts. There's also millions of people, like Abi, who identify as Protestant. So this week on Quick to Listen, we will discuss this tragic and fraught conflict, but we'll also get a better sense of what Christianity looks like in a place where more than 40% of the country identifies as Ethiopian Orthodox and nearly 25% as Protestant. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, I know when we are doing a gut check, sometimes there's something extremely obvious to just react to, but here we have a lot to kind of process and digest. What are you making of everything? I'm interested. I'm, I'm coming to this largely as a, a learner. I don't know a whole lot about the contemporary situation in Ethiopia. I, I'm interested for a few reasons. You know, one is, you know, I used to work at Christian History Magazine, long history of Christianity in Ethiopia. And also, you know, as a kind of committed evangelical Protestant, I have been interested in What's my relationship to so many of these Orthodox churches in Ethiopia tend to hold that Jesus is of one nature, so still fully divine, fully human, but one nature, whereas the Western churches that come out of the Council of Chalcedon. And, but the question for me, and hopefully we'll get into this in a minute, is what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? Are we, 
brothers uh, still? Are we brothers and sisters? Seems like yes, but like to, in what way? I mean, it seems like are we related the way I w- I'm related to other Orthodox churches? The other the other thing that I'm interested in is literally about I don't know a dozen houses down the street from me is a Tewahedo church, one of the more significant ones out here in the western suburbs. Every week, it is crowded with white robes and a number of you know, African Christians from from all over my area uh, converge in my neighborhood. And I'm like, oh, they're meeting. And, you know, there's there's part of me that's like, I'd, I'd love to go check that out. <laughs> the other time, like, I really need to be invited or to know someone that would that would help me walk through that because I, I get the sense that it would be very different. And perhaps as a evangelical Protestant, I'm, I may be more intruding than, than a visiting guest. But I'm interested to hear about the situation as well in, in Ethiopia. My family stayed a bit in Kenya. Ethiopia is right there in the north. A lot of engagement between Kenyan Christians and Ethiopian Christians. And I, boy, I, I just have a lot to learn. I, I have passing knowledge, but I'm looking for some deep knowledge. Morgan, how about you? So we published this piece back in 2019 that was called, Is the World's Next Missions Movement in Ethiopia? And one of the things that this piece noted was it said, among a vast population encompassing over 80 distinct ethnic and linguistic groups. And the sentence goes on to say something else, but that really (laughs) caught my eye when I was rereading this story in advance of recording this podcast. And I think to me, that just shows you that whatever I think about Ethiopia, I'm not anywhere near kind of really truly understanding the complexity that's there. That's something that I really want to get into. I think sometimes when I hear stories of conflict coming out from different parts of the world that I'm not very familiar with. It's super challenging at times to really get a sense of why all of these particular grievances and frustrations are so important because it can feel so complex and not easily very discernible, I guess, for someone who doesn't, I don't know, may not even have the ability to kind of always distinguish which ethnic groups are from which part of the world and how they're related to each other. Preparing for this podcast actually really reminded me of last year's podcast about Azerbaijan and learning more about the conflict that they had with Armenia. It's also reminded me a lot of the research that I've done in Myanmar with the ethnic groups that are there. I'm hopeful that this conversation that we're going to have is going to have the same result, as well as just kind of giving me a sense of what the church situation looks like there in a country where you have a very old historic and Orthodox church there, and then you also have a Protestant church. Ted, who is our guest? Our guest today is Desta Halisa. He was born and raised in Ethiopia, and then he studied at King's College London and London School of Theology. He lecturer and director of the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology. He is currently in London, but he continues to coordinate the Center for Ancient Christianity and Ethiopian Studies at the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology in Addis Ababa. And he is a fellow of the Center for Early African Christianity and a visiting lecturer at the London School of Theology. Desta, thanks for coming on. Quick to listen. Well, thank you for having me. All right. As you can tell, Ted and I's knowledge of everything happening in Ethiopia is a little bit all over the map right now. So maybe you can first help us understand some of the largest ethnic groups in Ethiopia and give us a sense of kind of how they've historically related to each other. Ethiopia is a very large country and its journey to become what it is right now has taken centuries and perhaps millennia. By primary, you probably mean the largest ethnic groups. The largest ethnic groups are Oromo and Amhara groups. 
there are other groups as well, such as Tigray, Afar, Somali, Sidama, Gurage, Walaita, Hadiya, and their populations number around about two to six million. So, for example, the population of the Tigray region is about six million. But there are many other small groups. Altogether, there are, there are more than 80 different people groups in Ethiopia. And would you say that there's historically been peace between these communities or has it been a situation where there's been, you know, long-standing tension or unrest? Historically related to each other through sharing land, for example, you know, Ethiopia has existed for millennia, as I said, uh, references to Ethiopis in Homeric poetic legends and Herodotus writings and the Greek Bible are there. And the Hebrew Bible uses Kush, which represents the end of the earth, in the extreme south, which might have included Nubia and the Arabian Peninsula. But we cannot be absolutely certain as to the territories Ethiopis or Sheba or Kush represented. But ancient Ethiopia was much larger than the current one. The people groups who lived in different parts of Ethiopia Different people groups shared land. They moved with their cattle from place to place. They encountered each other. They competed for resources. They lived in peace with each other. They at times fought with each other. The fall of the ancient Aksumite kingdom, few commercial centers, around about three, four centuries after the birth of Christ. But when Islamic powers blocked the trade routes in the Red Sea, Aksum collapsed. Resources became limited, and there was a lot of poverty. Food was scarce. So the Aksumite kingdom, with its Christian faith, moved southwards. And the move was as much to spread Christianity as it was in search of resources. When Christianity spread in the southern parts of Ethiopia, people mixed with each other. Tigrayans mixed with people group called Agos and people who lived in an area called Gondar, Gondrines, people who lived in an area called Shoa, as a result of the Christian kingdom in the north moving to Islamic territories in the southeast. So this happened sometime around 13th century. There were at least seven Islamic principalities in the east, in the southeast, that is, and the center of those Islamic principalities was Harar. One of those principalities was called Hadiyya Sultanate, and Hadiyya is the people group I come from, and the Hadiyas, along with other Sultanates, fought against the Christian forces, but they lost the war, but relationships developed. A famous Christian king called Zerayakob in the 15th century married a Hadiyya princess. She was later called Queen Eleni, and she initiated international diplomacy and served as a bridge between Egypt and other Arab nations because she was from Muslim background, but she converted to Christianity and she became a very strong Orthodox Christian. But they also related to each other because of the jihadist campaign led by an imam called Ahmed Ibn Ibrahim Al-Ghazi. It's a long name, but we call him Ahmed, the left-handed, Ahmed Grain. He was from Harar, 
He was a Muslim. He was a fanatic. And he organized many people groups and fought against the Christian kingdom. Although he was defeated and killed in the end, he had managed to penetrate the Christian heartland in the north. This enabled those in the south and east to encounter with one another and to encounter with those in the north. They became neighbors and and friends as a result. When we're talking about these different communities in a modern day context, what are the main things that have changed with how they relate to each other? When did they become a unified country, for instance? Again, it, it was a process. You know, after Grand Ahmed attacked the Christian kingdom, he was a jihadist. He wanted to establish an Islamic state in Ethiopia, but he was later defeated with the help of the Portuguese. As I said, it, it was a process. After the war between Imam Ahmed and the Christian kingdom, after he was defeated, the Oromos started to move towards different parts of the country. So we call it Oromo expansion. And the Oromos had supported Imam Ahmed and they had embraced Islam. Uh, They fought against the already weakened Christian kingdom and they occupied many territories in the north and south. So they Oromized people from other people groups en masse through their adoption system. So they would adopt clans. Those clans would covenant themselves to be Oromos, to speak the Oromo language and to adopt the Oromo culture. You know, as I see now, many Oromos are not only Oromos, but they could also be Amharas, they could be Agos, they could be Hadiyas or Somalis, etc. Oromos became part of the national structure. They got involved in administration. So those are the people group, the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia. But there was a unitarian system. There was a unitarian policy that the Ethiopian empire was promoting at the time. One country, one flag, one religion, one language, one king. So in order to implement this policy, Orthodox Christian governors with their soldiers and Amharic-speaking servants, officials, would move to different parts of the country and establish settlements that later became towns. And indigenous communities would mix with the newcomers and share their lives together. So that way, Ethiopia was established as a united country, but it took many centuries to get there. The Ethiopian Orthodox Tawaido Christianity, as we will discuss later, was a state religion, and Ethiopia was a religious state. So people saw lots of benefits in becoming Orthodox Christians. Yeah, help, help me understand a little bit about just how you know some of the Protestantism took root in, in Ethiopia. Protestantism came to Ethiopia sometime in the 19th century. The, the missionaries were not successful during the 19th century. So it was missionaries who came in the early 20th century from USA, from Canada, from United Kingdom, and other European countries like Germany, Sweden, and so on, who were successful. They were advised to go to the, to the West and to the South. Orthodox Christianity was dominant in the northern part. It wasn't as dominant in the southern part. Haile Selassie, the last emperor of Ethiopia, advised missionaries to not to preach the gospel as such, just to 
establish clinic and schools and so on. Protestantism has existed in Ethiopia for for about a century, maybe. The Lutherans have been around for about a century. Other movements have been around for over 90 years. They are proud of ancient Christian heritage, but not everyone in the Protestant tradition is proud of the ancient Christian heritage. There is a lot of suspicion towards one another. Uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Christians, particularly the leadership, would be suspicious towards the Protestants and vice versa. So ecumenical relationship has been difficult to achieve in Ethiopia, I have to admit. Many attempts were made, only partially succeeded, and we still haven't got what we would call ecumenical relationship. Yeah, can we talk about that? What are some of the divides in areas of mistrust? The Ethiopian Orthodox Taido Church has existed in Ethiopia for almost 1,700 years. It was a state church. Because it has existed in Ethiopia for many centuries, it became nominal faith. People did not really know how to relate to God personal level. When Protestantism came, it introduced this personal relationship with God. And many people, particularly young people, were interested in that. And when they started to become followers of Protestant tradition, the Ethiopian Orthodox Taido Church uh, leadership got very nervous. So they, they started to persecute using, of course, government structures. Many problems were created. The Protestants were regarded as anti-Marys, for example. Mariology is very, very strong in Ethiopia. Mary is, according to Protestants, she is not just revered, she is worshipped in the Ethiopian Orthodox Taido Church because there is a strong belief that she is the mother of God. That idea is very strong in Ethiopia. So that created mistrust as well. Mainly fear of losing control over the membership. Although Ethiopian Orthodox Taido Church is the largest church with probably 40 million members in Ethiopia out of 100 million people or 110 million people, over 40 million, that's a lot. Now, Protestant evangelicals are about 20 million. The Catholics are just under a million. Protestant evangelicals have grown exponentially over the last 90 years. All that has created suspicion towards each other. Does that debate between the number of, of natures, you know, two versus versus one natures in Jesus, is that something that ever <laughs> comes up as Ethiopian Christians talk about each other? Or is it kind of in the background and folks just kind of relate as different parts of the family? Do Tawahedos and, and Protestants see each other as as heretics? Do they, do they see each other as just having different ways of talking about Jesus? That actual debate about monophysitism. Is that at all an active discussion? The Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church is called the Tawahedo Church because Tawahedo means united or being one. There is Christological statement in the Tawahedo itself. The idea is the Son or the Logos, the Word, united himself with the flesh in the womb of Mary. The unity is emphasized in the Ethiopian Orthodox. It was Christology 
that led to that addition of that. There were three different competing Christological traditions in 18th, 19th centuries. And 19th century, the emperor, he was called Emperor Johannes. He was from Tigray. He was a Tawahido follower. He held a, a council in a place called Borumeda. And it was there that the debate took place because he was so biased and he didn't hide his bias. He threatened those who argued against the Tawahido formula. Then the Tawahido party won the debate and others were basically killed. Since then, the Tawahido is included in the church's name. So it is very, very strong. One of the unique elements in the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahido Christianity is that Christology. That goes back to Chalcedon, as you said, but it goes even back to the Council of Ephesus, where a man called Cyril of Alexandria, he argued very strongly that the council should be held. It was there that Mary, as the mother of God, was decided. And after that, there was a huge tension between the East and the West, and the East held what I would call one nature, divine Christology. Then in Chalcedon, they included the idea of Mary as the mother of God, and also they reconciled the Eastern and Western views, particularly the idea that as, as kind of seemed to, to divide the human and divine natures in the East, the teaching that seemed to confuse the human and divine nature. So Chalcedon tried to kind of trade the, the middle line, if you like. In the current lived experience of Christians in Ethiopia, especially Protestants, Evangelicals, Pentecostals, those, those folks, can you help me with an analog of how they would see Tawedo Christians? Is it similar to how Evangelical might see a Catholic? Is it similar to how a Baptist might see a Lutheran? Is it similar to how an evangelical might see a, a Mormon? There are some Protestant Christians who regard the Ethiopian Orthodox Taido Christianity as heresy. There are Christians within the Ethiopian Orthodox Taido Church who regard Protestants as heretic, partly because they are Chalcedonian in their Christology. They accept the human divine nature of Christ as separate. Protestants who have accepted the Western idea would regard the Orthodox Church as not heretic as such, but as mistaken. So that is how they would see each other. So if I asked an Orthodox bishop if they would be support us in the ecumenical relationship, they would say, no, we don't even have, that was what one, one bishop said to me, we don't even have communion with the Eastern Church. I studied in Russia, but we never had communion with them. We could study in their universities, in their seminaries, but we wouldn't have communion. So we cannot have very close relationship with you. But I can visit your institution. I can have fellowship with you, but not ecumenical relationship. So at the moment, it is not possible. I hope in future yeah, it will be possible. Is that different? You're in London now. Does the relationship between Ethiopian Christians from those different communities 
change in kind of the diaspora there? Protestants have their own churches and Orthodox have their own churches. But having said that, because the Ethiopian Orthodox Taido Church maintains ancient Christian heritage, not only the ancient Christian heritage, but also the ancient Ethiopian history, many Protestants would be party with that. You know, there are lots of replicas of the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia and Ethiopian churches. In one church, there might be two or one. And when the British came to fight against Emperor Teodros, who, who was what I would call a fanatic Christian who wanted to liberate Jerusalem from Muslims and who sought support from Queen Victoria, but he didn't get support and he fell out with her and he arrested some British people in Ethiopia. And as a result, the British sent troops and they fought against him and he committed suicide. But they took some artifacts from Ethiopia, uh, the British. And one Tabot, we call it Tabot, this replica of the Ark of the Covenant, ended up in Scotland and it was in a church. So no, no one knew for maybe almost a century and a half. But someone who used to visit Ethiopia, who could read Gaze, he stumbled into it and he, when he looked at it, it happened to be a Tabot. So he informed the Ethiopian Orthodox Oido Church and people were sent here, they assessed it, and it was indeed a piece of tabot. So with a lot of celebration, it came from Scotland. And I went to a church in central London where the celebration was taking place. So there is that connection through the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church fought against external forces. So for that, all Protestants have a lot of respect for the church. All right. So I was wondering, Dusty, if you could talk a little bit about how you became a Christian. I think you had mentioned a couple minutes ago that the ethnic group that you were part of had some connections to the Muslim community. So I was wondering if you were born a Christian or the extent to which Islam was still prevalent there and also what you were raised to believe about other Christians. My ethnic group, it's called Hadiya. As, as I said earlier, it was a, a Muslim sultanate. but then they moved with their cattle towards the central part of the country and they mixed with other pagans. Their religion became syncretized with paganism or animism. They kind of followed mixture of Islam and animism. So when my father was born, grandfather was mainly animist. So my father grew up as an animist, worshipping stones and trees and river etc., and sacrificing to all those. When he was a teenager, he converted to Christianity. I am basically second-generation Christian from my father's side, but from my mother's side, I'm third-generation Christian because my grandfather became Christian. My mother was a Christian when she married my father. So I was born into a Christian family. I converted to Christian faith when I was nine, I didn't understand much, but I think I understood uh, Christian faith when I was in high school. As you became a Christian, what type of tradition were you brought up in? I was brought up in what you might call a kind of Baptist tradition. My church is called the Ethiopian Kalehiwat Church. 
Kalehiwat means word of life. And it was planted by SIM missionaries, missionaries from Europe, Canada, and, and USA. That was in the 1920s. And then 1930s, the church, the Kalehiwat church, this SIM Kalehiwat church was planted in our area. And then it grew. Now the church has probably 9 million, 10 million members, as many local congregations throughout the country. I'm part of that church, but the, it is what I would call semi-indigenous church. Although we follow the adult baptism as part of our doctrine, we have our own tradition. It is not Baptist, but it is not fully indigenous either. It is somewhere in between. Can you talk a little bit more about how those two things came together, about how they were able to incorporate, I don't know what the best way to say it, Ethiopian values, cultural practices, understandings, how they were able to bring that into the church community? For example, the singing, whereas the the Lutheran churches, or what we call the Makane Jesus churches, translated hymns from German or English into Amharic, and they sang. The Ethiopian Kalehiwat church mainly sang its own songs. The traditional singing system was imported into the church, and they kind of contextualized that, and we would sing something that sounded like traditional but different. It was a kind of a Christianized way of singing. Other practices were adopted as well, but not directly. There was a clear, clean break between the culture and Christian faith in my church. For example, dancing wasn't allowed, drinking, chewing, what we call chat. It is a kind of plant. It is called cat in in the West, or drinking alcohol, etc. All those things. And of course, witchcraft wasn't allowed. So there was a clean break between traditional religious religious practices and Christian faith. But there were some elements, for example, singing was one of them, that were adopted within the church worship system. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection. A, a few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. 
But they're all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Let's step back a little bit from talking about your story and talk about the church at large. Would you say that Christianity overall has helped to unite the country in the midst of this really incredible diversity that they have? Or would you say that in many ways it's, you know, ended up dividing it? I would say, you know, Christianity has helped unite these diverse people groups. When we talk about Christianity, of course, we, we are talking about Ethiopian Orthodox, um, Tawahedo Christianity and Protestant Evangelical Christianity, and of course, Catholic Christianity. The Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Christianity was more or less imposed on various communities. For example, in the 19th century, there were forced baptisms. They took place in the northern part of the country. The majority of those who were forced to be baptized were Muslims. To this day, is remembered by many Muslims. You know, some Muslims returned to their former faith, but many remained Orthodox. Hence, it was only partly successful. And in our area as well, in the 20th century, Orthodox Christianity was imposed. The reason why it was imposed, although many did not remain Orthodox Christians, the reason why it was imposed was because it was regarded as a uniting religion. The empire was one empire. There was one king, one country, one flag, one religion. So that unity was basically strengthened through the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church. The unity can be understood as political or it can be understood as ecclesiastical, whether it represents the kind of the ethnic wall being broken is another question. And uh, in my view, the ethnic wall that divided one ethnic group from, from another wasn't necessarily broken down. And I think that happened when the gospel was preached by Protestant evangelical missionaries. When the gospel was preached in our area, the Hadiyas were always fighting with their neighboring ethnic groups. When they heard the gospel, the gospel of love and unity and peace, they became friends with their neighboring tribes. And they, even intermarriage started. In the past, they used to look down upon each other and they always tried to dominate one another. But particularly those who accepted the gospel, came to love their neighbors. So the unity was created. But, of course, Protestantism has a divisive aspect as well. You know, one of the things that we're really curious about, since it's in, it's in the news, is the situation in Tigray. You've written about this. In fact, we'll, we will link to an informative article that you wrote at uh, Religion Unplugged. What it is we need to understand most quick to listeners are the U.S. or are in, you know, in the West, broadly speaking. What is it that folks outside Ethiopia really kind of need to understand about the Tigray conflict? The politics. What was the politics like before this conflict? Ethiopia is a country, I would call it a country of many, many tragedies. Now I'm just over 50 
and last half century, a lot has happened in Ethiopia. I myself have experienced a number of governments. You know, I didn't know a lot about the last emperor, Haile Selassie. I was young when he was deposed and, and then he died. But after that, there was Marxist military communist regime and then Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front that was established by the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, which was a Marxist group. The country has gone through those uh, political processes, and I think understanding the politics is very, very important. But also making a distinction between the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front and the Tigrayan people. That is very important. Very often, I hear people mixing the two. I call it technically, they create kind of consubstantiality between the Tigrayan people, People's Liberation Front and the Tigrayan people. There is no, the unity between the two is wrong. And I think that needs to be corrected. And one of the questions, why are Tigrayan civilians targeted? I think that comes out of the kind of narrative that has been promoted here in the West. In attempting to understand the politics, TPLF, or the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, it remained Marxist at heart. And it was covertly hostile to religion. Though it was faithful to the principle of secular state, it really did not like religion that much. So it introduced what we call ethnic politics. It mixed ethnic identity with politics. Through that, ethnic federalism was, was created. Borders were defined through that. Each region was regarded as sovereign, and the Ethiopia's sovereignty depended on the sovereignty of each region and the Tigray People's Liberation Front initially had wanted to create a Tigray state, but then they decided not to do that because that wouldn't be useful for the people of Tigray and economically it wouldn't make sense. So they decided to rule the whole country and develop themselves through that. And I think it was that project failed when change came along. The West needs to understand that political dynamics. There are 80 people groups and the Tigray People's Liberation Front tried to establish an eth ethnically determined political system and that political system failed to work. When it failed to work, Abiy Yahimad came along and he introduced uh, what he called the politics of Maddamar. That Maddamar means to be added up. Some people translate it as synergy because Ethnic politics hasn't worked. The one nation, one flag, one religion, etc., did not work. That is called the unitarian system. He felt that the two should come together. Ethnic identity should be respected, but also the nation should be seen as a sovereign, united nation. It was that idea that led to the conflict between Abiy Ahmed and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, because they wanted to maintain the sovereignty of their region. But that, of course, was leading to all sorts of 
ethnic conflicts in different parts of the country, and that was going to destroy the country in the end. So I think it is that that needs to be understood. Thank you for giving that context there. I wanted to talk about some of these reports that we've been hearing that have caught a lot of people's attention because of the fact that churches have been involved in them. You know, from the reading that I've done, it seems like these attacks mostly were happening in the vicinity of churches rather than being attacks on the church themselves. But, you know, what do we know about these particular situations and what do they kind of reveal about Christians and the church at large? I'm just really disappointed with the reports that we receive. Many of the reports are not verified at all. And the recent report, for example, by Amnesty International, on which many tried to depend, which is found to be really weak. I raised quite a lot of questions on Amnesty's report. In Aksum, St. Mary's, Mary's Zion Church, it is called, at the beginning, they said 750 people were dragged out of that church and they were shot outside. Well, that story changed. Amnesty changed that story and they came up with another story. They said the Eritrean, Ethiopian and Amara forces went to different houses. They did a kind of house-to-house search and they dragged people out of there and they killed them on the 29th of November. But on the 30th of November, there was a celebration, the Feast of St. Mary's. So there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people who were in Aksum there. And there there were federal police forces who were there to ensure security. I kind of wondered, had hundreds been massacred on the 29th of November, would thousands have come out on the 30th to celebrate? And did Amnesty interview the federal police who were there on the 30th? There was a priest who gave an account. He claimed that he was in Aksum when that massacre massacre happened, but that priest happened to be someone who resides in Boston. So he was what I would call a fake priest. Amnesty did not interview the Ethiopian authorities or Eritrean authorities or the Amhara regional authorities. And I was quite disappointed, really, the way these reports were presented. I would like the Western audience to try to raise questions on all the reports, particularly the CNN report, which Morgan mentioned at the beginning. There are so many questions. I, I am so, so disappointed with the CNN report as well. All I'm saying is we have to stand for the truth, and the truth should be respected. And people shouldn't. Is there, is there a particular reason why, when you were looking at these reports, that you were like, something seems off or something seems suspicious? I just say it as like when I watched the CNN report yesterday, which was like a documentary and an article, you know, they have video footage of different things, and they, the video footage includes the shoes of the people who had been killed. From my perspective, when I was watching it, it seemed like they had tried to vet things pretty carefully with regards to this. It wasn't, you know, I I don't know exactly how Amnesty does their reporting, but the fact that they had video confirmation 
seemed more substantive. It looked substantive, didn't it? But the video at the beginning appeared to be from 2018. So they had 2018 on the video, which later they removed. Those interviewees were being advised by a fixer. You wouldn't understand that he was saying, you have to say 260 something people and so on. They were being told what to say. But that is one thing. This reporter, although she received that that video from someone, was she there? Did she actually interview people on the ground or she just received the video and reported on it? So that would be my question. And if you look at the, the video, if you studied it, there are many, many questions that should be raised. And there is, Ethiopia is in trouble at the moment because Egypt would like Ethiopia to stop the building of the dam. In order to ensure that Ethiopia stops the building of the dam, Egypt supports different groups in a region called Ben Shangul Gumuz, and also it used to support the TPLF. I think it still supports the Tigray People's Liberation Front. As soon as TPLF forces attack the Ethiopian forces, the federal forces, Sudan entered Ethiopia. So it invaded some territories on the Ethiopian-Sudanese border. So that itself shows that there was some kind of coordination in, in the operation. What will be the outcome of all that if you know these forces, the geopolitical forces, succeeded? Ethiopia will be fragmented as a nation. It is a very, very dangerous situation that we are facing. And I don't think that reporters appreciate that. That doesn't mean that if there are any atrocities, they shouldn't be investigated. I, I think any alleged atrocities should be investigated. There are different government structures that can do that, and they can be supported by Western governments and institutions. They should be investigated. But false reporting or unverified reporting doesn't help Ethiopia. It will lead to further fragmentation and further problems. As we draw to the close of this podcast, if you had kind of one prayer request for what's happening kind of broadly in Ethiopia right now, what would you encourage people to pray for? I would like people to pray for peace in Ethiopia. If I may add, peaceful election in June. I think that's very critical for Ethiopia. And without peaceful, democratic, and fair election, the situation in Ethiopia is going to get from bad to worse. The church is struggling with ethnic tensions. That resulted partly from human fallenness and partly from the kind of politics that was promoted in Ethiopia for the last 30 years. People, they are unsure whether their Christian faith has primacy over their ethnic identity. Am I Hadiya first and Christian second and Ethiopian third? Or am I Christian first and Hadiya, Ethiopian, whatever, or global Christian or citizen? So people are confused at the moment. And many would say their ethnic identity comes first. That has led to a lot of tensions within the church and outside the church. And I, I would like 
our sisters and brothers in, in the West to pray for the Ethiopian church to understand that Christ came to this world to promote love and unity and to preach peace, to be the, the Prince of Peace. That is one thing I would like you to pray for us. Well, thank you so much again, Desta. I think that as you were saying all of these things, many of our listeners will think of other ways in which there have been divisions among Christians in their own context. And I think what you're saying is, yeah, it's, it's really powerful to hear it coming out of a different context instead and to think about how that pertains to our own life and our own churches. So for folks who have feedback for us, please send us an email. We are at podcast with an S podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Please send us your feedback. Um, We would love to read it and give you our thoughts about it on the show. All right, now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, where we get to hear from everyone about something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, over to you. Yeah, you know, I often talk about board games in this segment, and I will do that again this week. The game I have today is just, I will say it straight out, it is a stupid game. It's a dumb game. A silly game called Throw Throw Burrito. Mostly played with cards where you are rapidly trying to make sets of three cards. You know, you have a maximum hand size of five cards. So you're just going through a massive draw pile. And your discard pile is your neighbor's draw pile. You're making sets. They're making sets. And some of the sets are burrito war or burrito battle. And you have these like little stupid squishy, you know, those little, you know, toy squishies. They're like squishy burritos. And for most of them, you have to be the first one to kind of throw, you know, pick it up and throw it at the person across from you. In other, in other cases, it's the whole, the whole table was trying to throw burritos at each other. Or there's a kind of a burrito duel where you kind of go back to back, do your paces and then, and then throw at each other. It is as I said, completely stupid. There's no real strategy to it. We're a year into COVID. We sometimes need just stupid games where we don't think and we throw dumb stuff to burritos at each other. The only real <laughs> trick and strategy that we have to employ is how to keep the dog away from the uh, burritos once we throw them because, man, does she love to get them and, and chew them up. But it, it's fun. If some of the games I've mentioned seem like a little heady and you just really want a dumb game that the whole family can play. This is this is one throw throw burrito. I I I can I can do a throw throw burrito photo on my Twitter, which is at Ted Olson. Ted Olson with an E. Morgan, what what brought you joy? Every other month or so I have a group Google Hangouts with three of my very close friends from childhood slash high school. And we talked for about two hours or so this past Sunday, which was really nice. I think among the many things that is wonderful about having this call is that one, we ended up having a conversation about something that could be very controversial. And I've seen lots of people get very inflamed about on social media. And we were able to talk about it in a way where everyone could share their perspective, which was not all the same at all. And no one really got that enraged at each other and asked a lot of good follow-up questions. And then two, I think it can be really challenging for adult friendships to go from the nostalgia that you may feel towards high school or junior high and to then kind of be your adult selves. But I think that we've done a lot of good work in this group of friends to be our full adult selves, which I'm really proud of. So cheers to everyone that is on that group call. And if you want to comment on that too, 
you can obviously reach out to me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. And by comment on that, I mean talk about adult friendships, which I always find is an interesting topic. Yeah, or you could obviously email us as well. All right, Desta, have you thought of a precious moment that you want to share? My precious moment is going to be different from, from yours. It was, comes from a few weeks ago. You know, we lived in Ethiopia for many years, and our children, although they were born here, biological children, were born here. They grew up in Ethiopia now. The twins are 10, and my daughter is 12. And they never saw snow. And when we came here, it never snowed. So in, in England, it tends not to snow. So we're not blessed with snow. This year, it did snow a few weeks ago. What For us, heavily, my children wouldn't let me sit in the house. And we were absolutely silly outside, just fighting. And they were rolling around. So that was, that was a precious moment for us. Desta, where can people find you outside of this? By email. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter as well, at Desta Heliso, D-E-S-T-A-H-E-L-I-S-O. All right, everyone, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps, and the transcript is brought to you by Boon Shola and Yvonne Sue. If people have feedback for us, they can do that by sending us an email. We are at podcast with an S, podcast at christianmedia.com or at CT Podcast. Again, please help us out by reading and reviewing the show, especially if you want to take a break from writing an email. That is a great way to support it. We will see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.